What companies deserve your hard-earned dollar? Which would you want to work for? How can you know if they share your values? Just ask us. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks who really means business in supporting workers, customers, communities, the environment, and shareholders. We measure progress, track success, and help them be better. When you see the Just Capital seal, you know what's real because just business is better business. Visit justcapital.com to learn who makes your dollar count. The first step is to try to write as purely and have the song be as natural as possible. Just to get the idea. Like, just to get kind of like a verse and a chorus. And just be like, what is this song? What's going on here? Like, what's the melody? What are the chords? And I usually write without a guitar. So it's just like a melody that pops in my head. And um, it usually has like some lyrics attached to it. And then I kind of either change them or in like the Noel Gallagher, leave them, bucket, who cares? 93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. My guest today is Barry Johnson, the lead singer of a great California punk band named Joyce Manor. Uh, Joyce Manor is putting out their new record later this week on October 7th. That album is called Cody, and um, I really think you ought to listen to it when it comes out. Hopefully it's streaming somewhere. I'm assuming it'll be streaming somewhere by the time this podcast runs. If it's not, then you should go back to the previous Joyce Manor record, which is called Never Hung Over Again. Uh, That's an album that we've talked about on this podcast before. Uh, My friend Ian Cohen named Never Hung Over Again as one of the best rock albums of the decade so far. Um, And I love it too. I think it's a great record. And I love Cody. Cody is a really good record as well. And um, Barry was a really great guy to talk to. I think you'll find that in this interview. We basically shot the shit. And uh, I kind of feel like Barry should have his own podcast. He's a very bubbly guy, has a lot of opinions. He's very knowledgeable. And um, it was great talking with him. Um, And uh, I think... What is great about Joyce Manor, it will be very apparent uh, in the conversation with Barry because you know the, the thing about Joyce Manor is that on one level they are a very sort of to the point band. Most of the songs that they that they that they write are in the two minute range. Uh, you get a verse, you get a chorus, maybe you get a guitar solo of some kind, although not really, and then the song is over. And uh, so it's very succinct to the point. It delivers what it needs to deliver, and then it gets out of there. Uh, but at the same time, the songs are very sophisticated and complex, especially lyrically. There's a lot going on. They're very conversational. Uh, there's a song on the new record called Fake ID, uh, which uh, goes off on this tangent about Kanye West in the middle of the song. Uh, and it's like a great, I think, parody of what people sound like when they talk about pop music uh online uh you know sort of that idea of being really overexcited and being kind of over intellectualizing everything uh which is something you know that's running rampant right now and any anytime you go into any kind of social media platform and people are talking about kanye west that's that's what it's like and this song 
fake ID by Joyce Manor. It captures that perfectly, uh, but it does it with a lot of economy. It's not a very long song, but it kind of gets to where it needs to go, and then it gets out of there. So um, I think with Barry, he's a sharp guy. I think that'll be readily apparent in this interview. And uh, why don't we get down to it? This is Barry from Joyce Manor. So where am I calling you? Uh, I'm actually parking my car. Okay. Right now. And uh, I just got done with yoga and getting a bagel and a coffee. And I got to go inside and plug my phone in so it doesn't die. Okay. And drink my coffee and do an interview. Well, can you talk while you're doing all this? Uh, yes. Okay. Well, let's save the heavy questions so I get a phone plugged in. So... Well, yeah, we won't we won't get into like the childhood abuse and all that stuff. Yeah, uh, let me get into my copy a little bit before we <laughs> get full on, uh, you know, therapy session. So, um, so you so you do yoga? Uh, yeah, as of a couple days ago. Oh, really? I and, just started. Yeah. And what was the impetus for that? I'm turning thirty pretty soon, and I thought the that time to get limber. And oh, yeah. I, I've never like touched my toes or. I'm super, super not flexible, um, and so I thought it might be a nice way to uh, get some exercise and you know stretch before I go sit in a van for a month. So just as you have stretched creatively on the new Joyce Manor record, you are stretching in real life. Yeah, exactly. See, like, in the, uh, like in the physical realm. Like if I was writing a magazine profile about you, that would be my uh, my lead. You know, absolutely. <laughs> Barry is stretching in his personal life, but he's also doing it in, in his music. And yeah, that, exactly. <laughs> it'd be very clever. Uh, and and what is a home for you? Oh, I live in uh, Long Beach, California. Okay. And are you a native? Uh, I'm actually from Torrance, California. Oh, well, yeah, Torrance, California, which is like um, 25 minutes away, pretty close. It's the home of the but Beach very Boys. Different. Home of the Beach Boys. Exactly. Well, I think they're, um, yes, but they're from Hawthorne, but one oh. of them was probably from Torrance. I think maybe, uh, maybe one of, one of the, uh, his what, Dennis, Carl, Brian, maybe, what's his name, uh, Mike Love was from Torrance or something. Okay. Somewhat, yeah, but yes, yeah. definitely. Our drummer, actually, his uncle played saxophone in the Beach Boys for a little while. Oh, really? He decided, decided to focus on school and he didn't want to be in the band anymore. No kidding. When was that? Uh, it would have been maybe the late fifties, early sixties. Oh wow! Like before any before any kind of success, they were like playing around locally. And he was the saxophone player for a moment. And I I think Torrance is also the setting for American Graffiti. Oh yeah. I think it is. Someone um, someone who's Boogie listening. Nights. Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights too. Okay. So so tons of Americana is wrapped up in like where you're from. I mean, did you grow up as a person who was like into pop culture, into music? I mean, when did that enter the picture for you growing up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as long as I can remember. I mean, like before I could talk, I was like reenacting the Faith video, George Michael video. Like, <laughs> I had one foot up against the wall playing a toy acoustic guitar. Um, yeah, it's, uh, always. And um, we famously, The Descendants, are from Torrance, um, and uh, there was a Mexican food restaurant by my house that had like descendant stuff up all over the walls because that's where like they used to go, and um, like newspaper clippings and stuff. And uh, I remember looking at that and just being like, "Whoa, who are these? 
insanely cool people. Like, what, what is this all about, you know? So, yeah, that, that kind of um, South Bay music scene and um, just pop culture in general, yeah, has been, been big for me always. And now you're on the same label as The Descendants. Is that not the coolest thing in the world? I think that's the American dream right there. I think that's you. I did it. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. <laughs> so, like, uh, tell me about your background as far as music goes. I mean, it sounds like you were aware of music from a very early age. Mm-hmm. I mean, when did you start making that crossover from, you know, just listening to music to actually, like, writing music and playing it? Uh, it took me a long time. I was, I've been, like, a huge, huge music fan for as long as I can remember, my big first obsession was Nirvana. I was like with a lot of people. Um, I was just like, all I wanted to talk about was Nirvana. All I thought about was Nirvana. And then... And like, were you uh, into them at the time when they were big? or Because you would have been, you know... Probably... Yeah, no, I remember, I remember when Kurt Cobain died. And being, yeah, it was, it, was, it was like, whoa, you know? So you would have been like uh, six or seven years old at that point. Yeah, what year was it? I think it was 94. Like, yeah, I would have been... No, I would have been eight. Okay, still pretty young. Yes, definitely, definitely. But, I, you know, I was a fan, and, um, yeah, it was, it was... Yeah, and then, you know, I got the MTV Unplugged album once that came out. And uh, from there, I, I kind of transitioned more into... So that was, like, 94, 95, 96. I was still a lot of Nirvana, like, some White Zombie. I was really into that first Garbage record. So like, you know, Lannis Morris Moore said. So like Alternative like Nation, my... like 120 minutes type stuff. Like totally. Things that was on MTV totally. at the time. There was a, my stepdad had this thing called, it was called HUH Video Monthly. It was like a, I think it was sent around to like maybe industry people. And there were like these music videos that would come out before they were on MTV. Kind of like, just here's what the labels are going to be, you know, putting into the world soon, and I don't, yeah, I don't know why we got them, but um, I got a lot of stuff through that, like Oasis, and the Dead Milkmen, and like, um, there was just, you know, certain things on there that, that's how I would find out about new stuff, and um, the next big thing was Ska, I got, when 97 Ska <laughs> broke, I was so, so down, like, I remember seeing the Mighty Mighty Boston's in that movie Clueless. Yeah. And just of it having this like moment of like, where has this music been? Like, this is my music. Like, this is, I just, I, I just loved it. See, I still, still love it. See, I'm glad you brought this up because I feel like this is a chapter that still has not been revisited. Like, you know, with all the nostalgia that we have, people don't talk about like the ska wave of the late nineties because it, it is sort of like, the equivalent to like the disco wave in the late seventies. Like everyone yeah. went to a ska show at some point. Yeah. I, I would, you know, I am the least, I'm the person least likely to skank in the world, but right. even I skanked at a show. Oh, totally. Cause like every college yeah. we have a ska fest, you know, there were uh-huh. ska bands everywhere. Uh, and then I, I don't know, it was like 99 or 2000 or something. It just crashed and it, it's as if it never happened. I know. Yeah, everyone just kind of snapped out of it. Like, it was a weird, like, <laughs> hypnosis. Everyone was just okay with being, like, that much of a fucking dork. <laughs> and then they all were just like, oh, shit. Like, like just caught a glimpse of themselves in the mirror from, like, a different angle. And they were just like, all right, let's, let's 
that turn this shit off, you know, like, you know what, there's some great music from that, from that time. Well, yeah. And, you know, and, and this just occurred to me, I wonder if, you know, because this was like right before the internet became a really big thing. I mean, the internet existed mm-hmm. at that time, but like the internet wasn't as omnipresent. So maybe mm-hmm. people felt a certain, uh, sense of security because of that. It's like, you could, you could go through your ska phase and it wouldn't be preserved, you know, documented. Like, in the annals of time forever, yeah. Yeah, it's like I could do this and then, but it's not going to be documented, so I can wipe it away and I can deny it later. Whereas right. now, any yeah. everything you do is documented, so you can't, you have no plausible deniability anymore. But you could, you, you know, could, what else I think, sorry, then, sorry. Okay, no, go ahead. Also, it could have been, it was all before that, like grunge and then like that kind of proto grunge, like Bush and stuff like that. And then um, I think that maybe it was just, Time for a little optimism, you know, like yeah. Hanson got big, Spice Girls, Third Eye Blind, everything got a little more effervescent and like major key and upbeat. And I think it was just maybe a reaction to that kind of extreme pessimism and like this is really cynical time and mindset. And just the flip of it was you got a year and a half of just like <laughs> brimming enthusiasm, Beanie Babies and fucking, you know, Smash Mouth singles. Time. Smash Mouth, it was great. And you know, Sugar like, Ray, great. and you also had yeah. you also had everything got like that. You had swingers in in the big band thing yeah. too. You had like Big Bad Voodoo Daddy and the Scroll Nut Zippers, Scroll Nut Zippers, and that was sort of parallel to the ska thing. So like if you were like a like a sax player or something in the late nineties, you had you were in demand. Like there you were had a ton- gig for one, man. <laughs> you had a gig. You could play in a ska right. band. You could play in one of these like big band band people. Yeah, man. You, you know, you it was like the salad the grunge, Yeah, the grunge thing was so guitar-oriented. And right. I think it was just people just like got fucking burnt out on that. It was like, let's get a trombone going and like a <laughs> smile, you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> let's kick our yeah. feet up, you know. Let's, uh, you know. It's not and, that bad. You know, and let's have a band, too, <laughs> where there's just a guy that dances. And that's his only yeah. job. Like, the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, I think, had a guy who he just skanked. That was his job. Oh, yeah. You mean Ben Carr? Yeah, the Boston? <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm familiar. <laughs> oh, you're dropping that that deep Boston's knowledge. Oh, yeah. Right oh, now. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah. See I, see, I appreciate when guests do their homework and, oh, yeah. and teach me something. I'm like, Ben Carr. See, I'm not going to forget that now. And I'll be at a party, and I'll bring that up, and I'll blow someone's mind, and I'll have to be like, no, I... Barry from Joyce Manor told me that. I can't yeah. take credit for that. So, like, okay, so we're talking about, so far we're talking about, like, kind of alternative rock, grunge, and then you went through a ska phase. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I feel like Joyce Manor is often discussed as, like, a, as a punk band or an emo band or even called, like, a pop punk band even. Yeah. And, and, those, and all those labels, I think, are somewhat reductive to what you guys are. But at any rate, when did that enter the picture for you? I mean, did you kind of go through a period where you were, like, more of, like, a straightforward like punk guy or was that mm. later on for you no not really I, I i i um a lot of where i got my music from was buying comps so i buy like the asian man records comp epitaph records comps so like this comp that comp and they were always kind of like a mixed bag you know like um they had like some third wave ska stuff some pop punk stuff some like even sometimes like hardcore bands or like indie rock bands would be involved so, like um 
And, you know, that's how I found out about, um, like, the weaker bands or, like, Super Chunk or, like, Smoking Popes. And, um, and of course, Blink-182 were huge at the time. And um, I was really into them. And then they, and then um, up until, like, Enema of the State, I really, really liked it. And uh, so that, you know, that, that, was, that was huge. But I was never super into pop punk as far as, like, when it got really popular as far as, like, Fall Out Boy or New Found Glory or um, The Starting Line and that kind of stuff. At that point, I was kind of, that, that would have been, two, like, the early 2000s, and I would have been 15 or 16, and at that point, I was pretty into indie rock. Like, I was really into, um, like, the Moldy Peaches and, like, Radiohead and Wilco and, um, you know, like, the Weaker Bands and uh, what else, like, shit, um, Modest Mouse. And, when, uh, when you were a guy to my voices guy too, right? That came a little later. I didn't get into them until my twenties, but okay. I got, I went, like, I got really, really into them, like obsessed. See, because like I'm, I'm curious because this, that's my favorite band of all time. So, same. I, really, it's your favorite band? Yeah. Oh, so okay. See, my, did you hear my ears perk up when? Because <laughs> um, I knew you were a fan, but I didn't know that they were your favorite band. Like, why, why guy to my voices? Um, I just think Bob Pollard is one of those, he's a Beatle, he's Bob Dylan, like he's, he's the real thing, you know what I mean, like it's not, um, he has, he has it, you know what I mean, like he has this unmistakable, um, genius to him, and, uh, and he also is an insanely hard worker, you know, he pushes himself, and he never stops writing, and he's just, um, you know, He's amazing. I saw him a couple months ago, and they're still the best fucking band. Like, <laughs> right. I see bands all the fucking time, and none of them rock that hard. Right. You know, like, that dude's going to be 60 soon, and he rocks harder than, like, all these fucking 23-year-olds. Like, just impeccable voice, still writing great songs, amazing sense of melody, an unreal sense of melody. Right. To where, like, he can write these perfect pop songs, but he's so bored with that that he has to push it into this, like, unfamiliar territory of, and then this the result is the, this thing that we're not even worthy of like we shouldn't even we don't deserve to have got it by voices they're just <laughs> the best band yeah i mean and, and you nailed it there i agree with everything you just said you know to me what always set them apart was that uh you know they wrote these amazing you know, pollard was an amazing songwriter they made you know these sort of very singular one-of-a-kind records um but they also were like you know, they carried themselves like a like a classic rock band. Like they actually like you'd go to their shows and they'd be drinking, and it was like yeah. a party. And like and they bravado, and, you know, it's yeah, awesome. twirling the microphone and stuff like that. And then, you know, coming up in the '90s, you weren't seeing a ton of bands that were willing to go there. And no that, way, man. The rock shit, rock shit was out. That was like embarrassing. You know, like that was. Yeah, I remember that. It was. It was. And I remember when I first saw it. He's like doing kicks. I'm just like kicks like you can't do kicks man like <laughs> but then you get but then you get on board and you're like fuck yeah you can do a kick you know like i don't know it's great yeah it's like there's a reason why these theatrical things endure because they work and when you see yeah. someone do that on stage it's exciting and it makes you want to pump your fist and drink beer and yeah you know hug the person next to you celebrate music and celebrate life it's amazing exactly. like so great yeah. So, like, when did you like, like, when did you join your first band or form your first band? Um. Okay. So, 
first song I ever wrote. My friend Brian taught me how to play a little bit of guitar. I had a bass and I kind of knew how to play it, but I didn't really, I didn't even know, even know the names of the strings or anything. Like I would just kind of dig around on a bass. And my friend Brian kind of showed me a little bit of guitar, and I took to it really well. Like I could strum right away. I had good natural rhythm, and it was it was a lot easier than like he he, he was good at explaining it to me. Like oh no, it's just you know, it is, if you do this shape, you can apply that anywhere on the on the neck. And I was like oh that's that's not so hard. And um, so when I was fifteen, I wrote a song for my girlfriend for like our one year anniversary or something. <laughs> it's so embarrassing. And he my his dad helped me record it and everything, and I just like. He kind of just helped me arrange and record the song for my girlfriend. It was so fucking bad and super embarrassing. Well, first but, of all, uh, I, think, like, I first of all, I haven't heard the song, but I think that's incredibly romantic that you wrote a song for your girlfriend. It's so embarrassing, man. Like I feel so bad for her that she had to put that on and just like, oh god, like it's, it just makes me want to die. No, man. About it. Hey, no, I I'm going the other way on that. I think you should hey, be admired for doing that. You know what? Yeah, because you know you. Exactly. You know, most 15 year olds, like, what are they? They're going to get their girlfriend, like, you know, some, like, shitty perfume or something. Like, you actually. I'm fucking broke, man. I was getting any perfume. Yeah, but, um... but you weren't, you weren't uh, creatively <laughs> broke. You put your heart out there. Like, what, what was the name of this song, by the way? I don't remember. Oh, I, 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 are you I, sure I you don't remember? <laughs> if I really dug, but I can't. I got to keep that sealed up. I got I can't. <laughs> I, I can't believe I'm even telling you about it, let alone, like, I can't dig up the title or the lyrics or start playing it for you on the phone right now. Okay. Um, but uh, that was my first attempt at music, period. That was before I ever played in a band or, like, you know, did anything. And then um, I played in a ska punk band when I was, like, 17. And that was weird because I'd gone through this whole indie rock phase, and then I kind of, like, was getting back into that I was into before that. And I was like, it was kind of like Operation Ivy, Rancid, um, just uh, like kind of, with kind of like, like a little bit of an oi vibe. Like, I don't know, I kind of wanted to start this like, for some reason, this ska punk band. So I had a ska punk band that lasted about a year. And that was really fun. That was our first time like playing shows. And See, it seems almost um, like a little late to be doing that. I mean, was that, because I mean, that music, I mean, I mean, has that, always, has that always been big in Southern California, though? I mean, is, like, are there still ska punk bands and stuff in that area? Oh, no way. It wasn't big at all, man. It was like, <laughs> I mean, there's, a, there's like a, uh, there's like actually a kind of Latino backyard, uh, like ska punk scene that's kind of been thriving for years. Like, there's a label in uh, Wilmington called um, Smell This Records. That, I mean, I, I think it's still around, but I, I don't. I don't really know. But I think that in the um, like um, the Mexican communities around there, there's ska punk was kind of like a a thing at um, like backyard house shows. I actually saw something on the news about it once, and they were like showing footage from this like crazy backyard show in Compton with like you know 300 kids there. See, um, see, th- th- this is one thing I love about Southern California because, like, I, I read a book recently. Um, it's called Van Halen Rising, and it's about mm-hmm. like the period before Van Halen put out their first record. And as much as you know, it's about the band, but it's more about the backyard party scene in Southern California and like <laughs> how there would be bands that basically, you know, hone their chops in this scene. Like they would just play people's backyards, and like yeah. Van Halen was one of those bands. And and now you're talking about this. It sounds like that still kind of goes on a little bit in Southern California. Yeah. I mean, like, did you yeah. play backyards a lot and stuff? Or 
We did some, yeah, we played a, ba- a backyard in Compton. We played this coffee shop in Riverside a couple times, and those were great. There was, like, a scene out there, and, um, you know, like, it was it was fun. And it was, I think it was, I think with playing in a ska punk band, it was, people are a lot more accepting. Because, you know, they want to, like, dance around, and they want to kind of, like, circle pit and have fun. So they're not like sitting there looking at you with their arms crossed, like, all right, impress me. They're like <laughs> right. looking for a reason to have fun. And there's not a shitload of ska bands around. So like if you're like halfway decent and we had a good drummer and um you know, we had we, we kinda had a thing and it was we sounded quite a bit like Operation Ivy. Like it was a convincing Operation Ivy impression. And it was fun. Yeah. So I think that, that was the idea with that band was just to make something that was fun and and inadvertently kind of taught me how to write songs and um, then be more comfortable, like, you know, expressing myself or doing something a little more serious. When did Joyce Manor come together? A couple years later. Like, the next band I had was actually with the bass player of Joyce Manor, who was, like, a guy I'd known around, and um, me and him decided to start a band. And and that was kind of like an extension of the ska punk band, but we lost the ska parts. But a lot of the same kind of like loud part, quiet part, but it was more of a kind of a Fugazi dynamic. It would be like, um, I know this seems kind of all crazy and all over the place, but that's how I was back then. I would be like, I want to be an Operation Ivy band, Operation Ivy rule. And then like six months later, like, I want to be in like a Fugazi at the drive-in band. And then like six months later, it was like, I want to be in a fucking, the band of like the Postal Service. You know, like it was just like, always, I couldn't, stick to anything because I would just get bored really easily. Yeah. But um Joyce Manor started when I was twenty two. And that was kind of I think what set it apart was that I, I really kinda of knew what I wanted to do and um I my my taste was solidifying a little bit. Like I felt like I kind of was figuring out like what I was into and it was, you know, the Beach Boys, Got Up by Voices, the Smiths, um you know, just kind of I guess college rock e kind of stuff um you know what i mean like like you know what i mean yeah yeah and, and that and it was th- around that time that, that kind of started to happen yeah and it's interesting again because you know you get classified as like a sort of like a like a punk band or an emo band but in terms of your influences or even like what you had in mind when you started it that doesn't seem like that was really even entering your mind as far as as far as that goes i mean a little bit like i, I i'm big Alkaline Trio fan. Like, I like Blink-182 a lot. Um, but there's, there's a good amount of... And there's a, there's a lot of pop-punk stuff. Like, uh, there's a band from San Pedro here called Toys That Kill. a pop-punk band. But they're kind of more like... Um, I don't know how to explain it. Like, uh, Lookout Records kind of stuff. Like, um, not like Screeching Weasel, but like, um, you know, like The Queers or like uh, ramones kind of pop-punk stuff. Like I really like that type, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I, 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 some of the pop punk stuff we get compared to, like I just, I'm like, oh, I've never listened to that. Like, <laughs> I, I really don't, you know, people like, oh man, you guys remind me so much of the Get Up Kids. It's like I've never listened to the Get Up Kids. Like I don't, yeah. I think they had some of the same influences you did, though. It sounds totally, like, you know, and yeah. and that's how you end up with that kind of stew. You know, I, I feel like now, yeah. um, in a way, like if you are you know, a guitar band and you mm-hmm. write observational lyrics or you write lyrics that maybe deal with personal emotional issues, you kind of automatically get slotted into punk and emo no matter what. 
You know, yeah. It seems like that's sort of an inevitable thing now, in a way. I don't think it bothers me as much as it bothers some other people. But I, 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 I don't, yeah, but I, and I don't, I don't mind it. I just, I sometimes don't get the comparisons. Like, Serenity Real Estate is another one that I, like, I, I've never, I never got into them, but people are always like, oh, man, you guys totally sound like Serenity Real Estate. Or, like, The Promise Ring was one for a long time, but then I got into The Promise Ring. I was like, you know what people keep saying? And then I just checked it out and, it took me a little while. It took me a little while to get past his voice, but now I really, really like the Promise Ring. But that was one that I'd never listened to. But everybody was like, "You guys sound just like the fucking Promise Ring." And then, you know, but I didn't check it out till after. And then, and then it became like a retroactive influence. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if my next record sounded more like the Promise Ring because, like, <laughs> they had some great fucking songs. Now, like you know, you, you were talking earlier, and I think this is a common thing for. A lot of musicians, like when they're young, is you know you you talk about how you kind of went from very different bands, you know, like you, you were in a Fugazi, Fugazi type band, and you were in a ska punk band, and I mean I think it's a common thing because you're trying to figure out like what fits, so you're trying on a, a lot on a lot of different costumes, and and yeah. uh, that's how you figure that out. Like with with Joyce Manor, I'm wondering like how, I guess conscious were you of the band's aesthetic? Like did you go in thinking like I want to write short songs? Or I want to write conversational sort of snapshot songs. I mean, were you thinking in those terms, or was it more organic than that? More organic. And the first time it was more organic. Like, it was... The band just had a little bit more of an everyday kind of quality than some of my other bands. With some of my other bands, it was a little more obvious what we were going for. And with this band, it was like kind of jawbreaker-esque, but I just really wanted them to be songs. Like, I wanted them to be songs the way, like, Oasis songs are just songs. Like, kind of in, like, almost like a um, Beatles kinks kind of like, look, it's just some chords with a melody, some lyrics. It's it's not super stylized. And I think that kind of let our, the way we sound and our own personalities, especially my personality as a songwriter, kind of more naturally come into come to the forefront and then it's like oh we do have a sound like and it is a little more stylized than, than I think but it's, it's stylized by just actually how I who I am and well, without without trying to present anything well I would say one difference between you and Oasis and look I love Oasis but like you, you seem to care a lot more about lyrics than Noel Gallagher oh, like, I know but like Noel Gallagher and, and, and Noel Gallagher has some great lyrics but like there are lyrics too where he clearly does not give a shit at all right like, yeah that drives me nuts some songs, I'm just like, this melody is impeccable, and like, this song rocks. But like, like what's the line where he's like, on that B-side, where he's like, gonna buy a motor car, maybe a Jaguar. It's like, dude, you could fucking do better, man. Like, well, the, ultimate, the song is so good. Yeah, that's Step Out. They're stepping out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The uh, the line I always think of is from some might say where he's like where it's like in in it's like something like my cat's been itching itching in the kitchen once again or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. just like, dude, you did not give a fuck about what you were singing in the like. What, but you know, he's probably like, well, Liam will sing it, and it doesn't. I don't have to sing it, so whatever. <laughs> um, but isn't it kind of like it wouldn't be the same if they gave a fuck? Like exactly. If, if Liam sings it like he doesn't give a fuck because he probably doesn't. He definitely doesn't. But yeah, I think I, mean, I, I I love that band. Maybe the idea was like this song is so awesome that I'm gonna put myself in, yeah I'm gonna put myself in a hole with this lyric and it won't even matter because we'll Liam will sing it and it'll sound like spectacular and uh, yeah 
So like, in a way, it's like the most arrogant thing that he could do is to write shitty lyrics. Cause it's like, I'm so Perfect. great. It doesn't matter. Um, Perfect. like to kind of bring it back to the American dream aspect of the Joyce Manor story, like your, your, your newest record, Cody is is uh, produced by Rob Schnaff who, uh, worked with guided by voices, uh, produced one of my favorite guided by voices records, isolation drills. Um, and, yeah, it's a great record. Mm-hmm. I mean, was that, was that one of the reasons why you wanted to work with him because of that connection or how'd you get hooked up with him? Yeah, man, of course. Like, that was huge. He did. I mean, he did isolation drills. He did the Save the Day records, which I love. I love those two Save the Day records he did. Um, and I feel like Save the Day, especially in that era, is a is a good kind of like. That's kind of Joyce Mannery, you know. It's like a little bit indie rock, pretty pop punk. It's very fun. Um, but uh, yeah, I think those records sonically were like, oh, you know, he did those, and those that would be a great sound for us you know it's it's warm but it rocks um and elliot smith we're huge elliot smith fans and the way you know those records sound great um and yeah and just i think for how long he had uh rob had just consistently made good records it was and you know it was just like and the fact that he like when brett rebitaff reached out to him and he was into it it was just Really flattering. I, I kind of felt like he'd be like, oh, you know, I'm not really trying to do stuff like that right now, but thanks for asking. But when he was into it, it was kind of like, holy shit, like, you know, we're, uh, we're working with the guy who did Got It By Voices and Elliot Smith. Like, fuck, this is amazing. Yeah, he did the last Kurt Vile record, too. I yeah. Think he came in at the end, I think, helped clarify that. Yeah, so I think he's definitely in the game and still wanting to work with, like, up-and-coming bands and... And, and making it happen for them. I mean, the, uh, the other thing about this record, too, I think the great thing about Cody is that it has all the qualities of your previous record, Never Hung Over Again, but it just sort of expands the palette just a little bit more in terms of the sound and also the lyrics. Um, also, the songs are slightly longer this time. I mean, mm-hmm. there's, there's like a four-minute song on the record, which is like... Um, you know, like your version of like Stairway to Heaven, basically, is that like a four-minute yeah. song. Um, you know, in terms of stuff like that, you know, again, like, is that something that you are conscious of? I mean, is there ever a moment where you're like, this song is too long, this can't be a Joyce Manor song, you know? I mean, I'm always curious about like how bands, yeah. like once you've been around long enough, you know, the I think the goal for any band is to have a recognizable voice or aesthetic, but then that can also become a prison and I'm wondering, like, how do you reconcile that, I guess, moving forward with the band? Well, I think that the first step is to try to write as purely and have the song be as natural as possible, just to get the idea, like, just to get kind of like a verse and a chorus, and just be like, what is this song? What's going on here? Like, what's the melody? What are the chords? And I usually write without a guitar, so it's just like a melody that pops in my head. And um, it usually has like some lyrics attached to it, and then I kind of either change them or, in like the Noel Gallagher, just leave them. Fuck it, who cares? But um, and then from there you kind of have to make it a song. And my knowledge of arrangement and and like the different tricks and stuff is really limited. And so I kind of by myself and the way you know I grew up listening to like a lot of punk stuff, and um, that typically tends to be on the shorter side, and a lot of those. The arrangements are, you know, these kind of, there's no need to milk a chorus 
certain amount of times, you know, especially if it's good. You can only, and like Guided by Voices, especially, like I was listening to them a lot, they don't, they tend not to, um, to draw it out longer than necessary. But that's not to say, like, I, I want the song to be as good as possible. So, like, however long it needs to be, like, it, it's no good if it's too short. You know, if it's too short, like, I don't like the idea of, like, oh, you can just play it again. Like, the song should be satisfying. You know what I mean? Like, you're putting right. together something that should be enjoyable for people. And so, um, I want it to be as long as, as the song wants to be, you know, like with like as the right amount of choruses, the right amount of verses, the right bridge for the song. And that's the other thing is I'm usually not that good about writing a bridge because it's usually you want it to be kind of a, depart- a departure. But I've learned recently to kind of go into the scrap pile of songs you've scrapped and just take something and just like put it in the song. And like, it's kind of like, it's kind of odd how it works sometimes. You just like take something that just is completely separate and just throw it in the middle of the song, and sometimes it can just really make, it can really make the song. And so just little things like that I'm learning, little tricks of like, if you do two verses in the beginning and then a chorus, you can kind of get another chorus out of it because you delayed the first chorus. And just stuff like that that I didn't know. You know, I want the songs to be as good as possible, and I don't, I don't, know, I don't like have any allegiance to short songs or necessarily want to make them longer. I just want them to be the right length to where it feels feels good the whole way through yeah. and you know you don't feel like it's over too early you don't feel like it goes on too long which I mean it all sounds very obvious but it's it's harder said than done sometimes because you don't yeah, I you're mean, not sure if you're just kind of bored of the song or if it's going on too long you know what I mean yeah I, I mean it doesn't sound obvious to me I mean to me that's always like the magic of songwriting or, or I guess any kind of art is knowing when it's done you know that always seems yeah. difficult and, and I guess Pollard got around that by just sort of being a guy that, you know, sort of, ex- you know, he, he inhaled inspiration and exhaled songs, you know, and it was like, yeah. the song is out, I'm not going to work on it anymore, it's there, and it is what it is, and I'm not going to deal with it anymore. Um, the other thing I wonder about, too, with your with your songwriting, I mean, it seems like, again, there's like a snapshot quality to a lot of your songwriting, like I think of that song Fake ID from, from Cody, and there's that part in the middle where the girl is talking about Kanye West, and talking about how he's the the greatest in the world, and he's better than John Steinbeck, and better than Phil Hartman, and and I don't know if there's like a satirical element to that. Like when I heard that song, it it kind of reminded me of like things I hear, like when people talk about pop music, where it's very sort of overwrought and over the top. It seemed funny to me. Maybe it's not, but like it did seem like something that you would yeah, hear maybe. someone say. And I'm just wondering, like, do you type things into your phone, like when someone says something, and you think I'm going to turn that into a song or is, is, is that part of your process? I mean, no, you hit the, you hit the nail on the head. I, it, it's not actually something I ever heard, but it's just something you would overhear. <laughs> like, everyone's got fucking opinion about Kanye West, and it's always, like, this like, idiotic, like, just, or just, you see so many comparisons like that. of just like, like, what? Like, you know, like, it, it's just, it's just, it's just nonsense. Yeah, it's just like, an, like, you know, kind of that, you know, it, it just—it just kind of like the how ridiculous the conversation is, and just this idiotic conversation you wish you weren't a part of. Um, but you know, also just very like—I don't know. I, there was something about because that was—that was one that just it came attached to the melody. Like when I went to that chorus, I just kind of the "What do you think about Kanye West?" line popped up, and then the first two people I thought of after that were John Steinbeck and Phil Hartman. I don't know why. <laughs> like, it, it's the musicality of the names, I think. Um, and 
and uh, I just loved it. I was just like, man, it's and you know, and it's like it's one stuffy old white guy and one like beloved comic who was murdered at you know like and it's like it's really tragic and it's like over it's really ta- it's really in poor taste to like that line but but i love it like i think it's i think it's really um i think it's a, i'm really proud of that line i think the statute of limitations on phil hartman references has 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 expired i think you can reference yeah, him and not necessarily be referring yeah. to his death i think right he right, stands yeah. alone i think he stands apart from his death I think well, I hope it pops into your head. You know what I mean? Like it, it kind of colors it a little darker. Right. I think you know because John Steinbeck was also dead, <laughs> but it's not as sad as like you know someone like Phil Hartman who had a tragic. There's a, there's almost a tragedy to his life. To and me, so it was more like, like he's such a. To me, it was just it had the right mix of like being kind of a random name and also yeah. uh, being a guy who is like sort of universally beloved. So to say that. Kanye West is better than Phil Hartman. It's like saying he's better than pizza or, you know, better than right. sex or something. Um, Not a musician either. Yeah, neither right. of them are musicians. <laughs> but, you know, like, John Steinbeck is this, like, master of words and, like, a, high art is like a, you know, a kind of, like, high art. Well, I don't know if these kids are high art, but, like, you know, real art that's taught in schools and stuff. I feel like and someone... Phil Hartman is not. <laughs> well, I feel like someone somewhere has probably compared Jesus to, like, the Grapes of Wrath. Like I wouldn't be surprised if there's like a, yeah. if there's a think piece out there. <laughs> it's more it's more viable. And then the Phil Hartman one just really sends it home with like this is fucking nonsense. You know what I mean? Like yeah. <laughs> well, Barry, I I really like the record a lot, and I Thank think uh, I really hope you guys do well with it. It comes out October seventh. This pod is going to run I think a a week or so before that. So I think everyone should go check it out and check out the other Joyce Manor records. They're all great. Uh, Barry, it was awesome talking with you. I hope to have you on again sometime, and we can just talk about shitty Oasis lyrics. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. All right, man. Take care. All right. That was Barry Johnson from Joyce Manor. Uh, The new record is called Cody. I highly recommend checking it out. That'll be out on October 7th, which is the Friday after this podcast uh, posts. And hopefully it's streaming somewhere, so you should go check that out right away. Um, I want to remind you guys, I I, I announced this last week, um, but uh, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is going on a hiatus after next week, October 10th. That's going to be our last episode of 2016. And then uh, I'm going to take a little break uh, for, you know, about maybe three or four months, and then we'll, we'll be back in early 2017. For season two of Celebration Rock, bigger and better than ever. Um, it's going to be more violent in season two. Uh, we're going to have more sex scenes in season two. It's, it's going to be all around flashier and better. So uh, that'll be uh, that'll be exciting. But yeah, we have one more episode. So definitely tune in, tune in next week, the season finale of Celebration Rock. Uh, I would really appreciate to see you all there before we take uh, the break off for the winter. So. Thanks again, guys, for listening. Uh, this Again, this is the Celebration Rock Podcast, and uh, we'll see you all next week.